Now, we're continuing our series, and that series is on the Apostles' Creed. Just a couple things. I won't recap the whole series, but just a couple things to remember. We said that this Apostles' Creed, yes, it is from the past. It should never be relegated to the past. It is for us today. It's why we're preaching through it. We're preaching through what the Scriptures have to say about the sermon. We're not preaching the Apostles' Creed. We're preaching the Scriptures, and the Apostles' Creed are faithful representation of what those Scriptures say. One last thought in terms of review. We said this over and over and over again. That there are two things that we're trying to do within this series. On the one hand, we want people to see that there are essential beliefs. There are things that we must believe in order to have a sincere walk with God, to be redeemed by Jesus. There are beliefs that we must adhere to. And belief not meaning just an intellectual assent to, but an actual embracing of. Meaning the word that's used oftentimes for belief is not just, that it's actually stepping in to. You believe in something by moving into it, what scriptures have there. So there's essential beliefs that we have. And at the same time, what we want to do is to, to major on the majors, but then we want to embrace the beautiful diversity that is the big C church. So there is a church throughout this world. It is God's plan. And we want to embrace the diversity of this church while we disagree with some of the things that are not essential, but those things that are essential, we must not yield on. These are the things that unify us um, there. We're not going to be unified around carpet, although the carpet is beautiful and glorious and luxurious here. We're not going to be uh, uh, unified around uh, song choice. We're not going to be unified around style and dress. Um, if you noticed how good David Zanders looked this morning in that tie, which we will all be wearing in heaven uh, one day. We're not going to be uh, uh, unified around any of those things. We, we are going to be unified around the essentials about who God is and, 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 and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So that's what this Apostles' Creed is doing. I want to make this statement to you. Today we sit on the church, and the church is God's plan to bring redemption to the world. Hear me again. The church is God's plan to bring redemption to the world. The church can't redeem. Jesus redeems. But God's plan is that the church will bring Jesus to the world. Not in the way that, that Jesus has already shown up. Okay, We're not going to be... Uh, uh, in the, in terms of us introducing the world to the person of Jesus, when they never had a chance to meet him, he existed here on the earth for, for just a brief 33 years, um, approximately, um, in his physical life. Um, however, through the church, he continues his ministry. So God's plan is to bring redemption to the world through the person of Jesus. There is micro-redemption and there is macro-redemption. Micro-redemption is bringing healing to individuals and families and systems, etc. Does your family need healing? Does your marriage need healing? Does your body need healing? Does your neighborhood need healing? Does your office need healing? Does your political party need healing? God's plan to bring healing to the world is the church. So don't look to a political system. Don't look to your wife. 
Don't look to your children. Don't look to your neighborhood. Don't, don't look to your, your don't, don't look in any direction that God has not specifically called you to look in. So how is redemption going to be brought on a micro level to the world? Don't expect governments to get it right. Don't expect um, uh, secular things, which will be helpful. God will use them. He can use anyone, anywhere, at any time. But look to the church. One of the things I'm most excited about right now is what we have going on specifically for marriages. Not too long ago, just a few weekends ago, several staff members and and officers, we we did a little pilot program. We went through what's called Adventures in Marriage just to see, would this thing be helpful for us? It is going to be a game changer for many of us. So today, if you're sitting next to your spouse and you're saying, I like this person, not always, probably not even most of the time do I like this person, but, but I'm here because I know we're supposed to be here and I've got a commitment to marriage and I want to make this thing last and, and I don't know that we'll ever have a, a thriving marriage. I don't know that we'll ever truly become the kind of one that scripture talks about where we're, we're, we're walking in the same direction. If you're just kind of gritting it out, if you're just kind of gutting it through, look to the church church will help. There's the micro healing for relationships. If you're in school and you're trying to figure out what it looks like to to bring healing and restoration to some of the relationships that have been devastated through gossip or, or, or through whatever it may be, look to the church for help. There's, there's micro and then there's also the macro. The macro is very easy. I don't have to explain this very much because we talk about it all the time. The, the macro redemption is when Jesus is going to make all things new. Okay, we work on this. The church is working on this, doing this on a, uh, a slow progress. When Jesus comes back, man, boom, it's done. All sin and all of its effects are going to be removed, and that's the day that we will indeed rejoice. The world will be, will be made like everyone wants it to be. It'll be this utopia, but it'll not be a utopia in my mind and in your mind and in our creation. It will be perfection as God intended it, designed it, and created it to be. So macro out there, uh, uh, people's salvation, God's plan is for the church to bring Jesus to the world so that they can their souls can be redeemed. If you have your Bibles, open with me to 1 Peter. This is our main passage for the morning. We'll look at some other ones, but this is the place that we um, will expound upon and we'll see um, as the morning goes um, out here. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you would stand in honor of God's reading, of God's word, it is just one brief verse for us to look at. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You may be seated. Peter was one of the dearest friends of Jesus while Jesus was walking the earth. Peter is the guy that most of us identify with pretty easily. Now, there's a few of us that have very introverted personalities that are very methodical, careful in what we say, and we read about Peter in the Scripture, and we think, man, that guy was just dumb. He just, all the, in fact, he reminds me of my brother. This is what my little brother says. Peter sort of reminds me of David. David reminds me of Peter. 
Most of us, though, know what it's like to open mouth and then only moments later to feel the need to insert foot. That is Peter. Okay, Peter did not lack boldness. Peter did not lack courage. Peter did not lack initiative. Peter oftentimes lacked wisdom. And we know what that's like. Peter is writing this letter. And remember, Peter is the one um, who, after Jesus is raised again from the dead, Jesus comes specifically to him. He says, man, I'm going to restore you to ministry, and I've got a special plan for you, and that is that you will build up this thing called the church. So you remember, three times Peter denies him, and three times Jesus gives him an ability to answer the question. Jesus comes back, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times Peter told the world, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And three times Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love Yes. Yes. Good grief, yes. Peter knows what it's like to be a failure. Peter knows what it's like to deny the Lord. Peter knows what it's like to have the best of intentions and to not follow through on them. Peter knows what it's like to start something that may not be the best plan. And Peter is writing this letter after he has been restored in ministry. Years have gone on now. He's nearing the end of his life, and he writes a letter. And in here he says to the church this. You, you're a royal priesthood. Royal means not a whole lot to us in America. We don't really particularly care for kings. We sort of have a little pushback with that. We had a little battle a couple hundred years ago that sort of put us in a direction. We like presidents. We like shared power. We don't like this whole monarchy thing. When Peter was writing this to these folks, though, keep in mind he's writing to folks that were not coming from, most of them not coming from tremendous means. And when he says that you are a part of a royal, he's saying that you belong to the best of the best. You belong to the king of kings. Nobody knew what it was like to belong to the best of the best. And belong, by that I mean the best sense of the word, where you are cared for and loved and cherished and honored and valued and needed. They were used to belonging in terms of pay, go do this, go do that. They had no personal relationship. You are a royal priesthood. What was the job of the priest? The job of the priest was to take the prayers of the people up to the person of God. And it was also to bring the forgiveness of God to the people of God. They had this role, this intermediary. Jesus is the ultimate priest. No priest could do what Jesus did in terms of actually forgiving someone's sins. The priest would declare. The priest would, 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 would pray on behalf of the people over and over and over again. He says, you, my people, you are a royal priesthood. Can I put the thought together for you real quick? How's the world going to know? You belong to the king. And the king wants people to know that he's after their hearts. And how do we primarily go about that? Oh, God. For Jane. For Bob. God, for my mother, for my father, for my sibling, for my coworker, for my neighbor, for my child. Oh, God, would you reach into their hearts? 
And then we get a chance to then come alongside them and say, I know, I know you're just overwhelmed with guilt and shame. And let me tell you what Jesus does with guilt and shame. The only one who can ease your soul. See, we get a chance, we have the privilege, we have the responsibility to labor on behalf of other people, to intercede, to say, God, would you sick them? Go after them. Holy Spirit, overwhelm them with the weight of their sin, not so that they would feel terrible about themselves, so that they would look up and see the magnificence of your grace. And then we just get a chance to tell them what Jesus has done. Guess what a priest didn't do? No priest in the Old Testament was ever able to change the behavior of the people. It's not the job of the priest. The job of the priest is to come alongside, to listen, to help, to pray for, to encourage, to stimulate towards love and good deeds. But ultimately, the job of the priest, the ultimate job of the priest is to keep the person of God, the person of Jesus, in the minds and hearts of the people. Because that's who changes lives. Are you a royal priest? Are you enjoying your job, your role as God's agent here on the earth to bring redemption to the world? Are you enjoying the time in which you're getting to pray for those who currently just don't know Jesus? You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Now, I want to hit a little bit more of this here in just a second, but when it says a holy nation, it means that they were set apart and they were to be morally improving. Not perfect, but improving. God had declared them righteous, even though they were still sinning. Because of the work of Jesus, God had said, it is as if you have not sinned because my son has done all the work necessary on your behalf. It says that they are a nation. This language would have identified with Old Testament Israel, would it have not? You are a people that are governed by God. You're set apart. You're morally improving. And and, and you are a people. Last thing he says is this, a people for what purpose? His own possession. You're a people for his possession, for God to own, for God to cherish, for God to value, etc., for God to rule over, to head up, except all that. You are a people for his possession. And what are we doing? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is this group of collective people underneath the reign and rule of King Jesus, being valued and cherished and honored and respected, etc., being called by God to minister to a world on his behalf. But we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are his people. It says that we may proclaim the excellencies. What a great word. How many excellencies have you experienced from God just this very week? Where has he given you just Little taps, little hugs, little kisses, little affirmations, little ways in which you have just been made aware. Only God can do this kind of stuff. We're his so that we can just proclaim the excellence.
excellencies of him. He called us out of darkness. Do you remember what it was like to be enslaved by sin? Many of you are saying, yep, got it. Understand it right now. Do you remember what it was like to have no hope, to not be able to know that you could go to someone each and every day and say, I did it again, and you would hear, it's okay, I've covered it. You are forgiven. Do you remember what it was like to not have your conscience cleansed? Do you remember what it was like to be overwhelmed with the weight of your sin? If you can't remember what that's like, man, do I envy you. If you have become just so overwhelmed by God's grace that you can't even remember what it's like to not taste it, I envy you. And in some ways, it may be a hindrance to our ministry to the world. This is the church. Now, what's the summary that the Apostles' Creed gives us? It says that I believe, you know what? I forgot to get us to say it. I just realized that right now. Is there any way we could go back, put it on the screen so that we could recite this once again? (laughs) Would you collectively with me recite the Apostles' Creed? I would ask you, Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Come to just the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Was yours in the correct order? Okay, I don't know what happened back there. Mine was not. I, anyway, it was fun. I'm glad you had it correct. It's in there. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. It says that it is holy. Holy means two things in scriptures. It means primarily being set apart, and then it means secondarily, but also in there, to a lesser place that it is emphasized throughout the scriptures. Does it mean morally perfect? So here's what it means for the church. It means that we have been set apart. We have been plucked out of the world's system, the world's mindset, the world's ways. We've been taken out of that system And we've now been called by God to live in a different way, to show the world that there is a different way to go about this. It's a better way. So we've been pulled out, but he has placed us right inside of this world. So we've been called out of its thinking, out of its approach to life, but we've been placed in here specifically to influence. We are holy. Now, if I were to ask you or any person in the world right now, take any country you want anywhere on planet Earth and say, do you think that the church is a lot of holy people? What do you think the response is going to be? They'll say, yeah, uh, there's some people like Mother Teresa, uh, Billy Graham. I know there's some others that have been really good over the years. But man, when I think about Fred down the road uh, from me, I don't don't think of, of, of holy 
I think of some unique language from time to time. I don't think of holy. I think funny. I think warm, but holy? I mean, we have been called out of a mindset, a way of living, a process into the world so that we might influence. What is God's way? What is the better way? Quick example. Um, what does modern day um, uh, marriage look like? In many ways, I would say it is, I'm trying to get everything I can out of you for as long as I can until such time as it no longer works, and then we move on. What's the biblical model? The biblical model is where both spouses, husband and wife, are not going 50-50 at this thing. It's 100%, 100%. I'm all in. Even if you're not, I'm all in. I'm giving everything that I've got to the very last breath. And I'm waking up every day trying to think about how it is that I can serve you. Now, guess what the other one person's called to do? Give everything they have. Wake up every day. How can I serve you? When you have two people collectively saying, how can we serve one another? How can I love you? What are your needs? If both are asking that question or trying to outserve one another, do you think it's going to be a decent relationship? It's a better way. So rather than thinking primarily about how I can receive from you, I'm thinking primarily about how I can give to you. It's a better way. This is what the church is called. We are holy, set apart, and now listen, we are morally improving. I will tell you without a shadow of a doubt, I know that in many aspects of my life, I have seen great victory over sin. And in other aspects of my life, it feels as though I have actually regressed. When I think about how unselfish I used to be, I'm in awe. Now, I don't know if that's because I was actually less selfish. Probably what's more likely, I was just less aware of how selfish I actually was. But when I look at 52 right now, when I think about the orientation of my life, I think nobody has to get me to think about me. I don't ever have to stop for a moment and think, I wonder what I would like out of this situation. It is in front of me all the time. It is something that I am having to battle more now than I ever felt as I did in my 20s. Don't ask my wife about it. All she's going to tell you is he's the model husband. Perfect in every way. It's been bliss for her every day since March, or since uh, uh, when we got married. I was giving you her birthday. <laughs> since October 14 of 1995, it's just been bliss every day for her. We have a better way to approach life. The issue is, is that oftentimes I just don't choose that better way. And the reason is because I would rather do my way in my timing when I want. However, when you look at my life, generally speaking, and this really is true, um, you will find that there has been um, a progression toward, that there's been areas um, that God is doing a good work in me. When I look back historically at my life, I say I have every reason to believe that God is going to continue to work on this selfishness because of all the work that I saw him do when I was here and here and here. And there's been some things that, that used to be temptations that are not huge temptations now. I mean, I'm sorry, huge temptations are not as huge now. There's other things that are more tempting now than they were then. Um, uh, but I see God moving in me. You probably see the same. 
And at the same time, you probably feel more sinful now than you ever have. We are morally improving, not morally perfect. Very quickly, the church defined, I'm going to give you the simplest definition I know of. Um, Somebody else may have come up with this, but this is one that I just put words to uh, for simplicity's sake. The church is all of God's people in all places throughout all time. That's the church. All of God's people in all places throughout all of time, which means that there are two groups that we should look at. There is the Old Testament Israel, and then there is the New Testament church. Both of these are God's people. Both of these could be referred to as the church. And I won't walk you through all of that, but these are uh, God's, uh, God's people. There is an invisible and a visible church. The invisible church is all of God's people that only God knows about what that number is because we cannot look in and we cannot know the minds and hearts of people. Some people look like they may be Christians, they're actually not. Others may not look like it, but they actually are. Only God knows who that is. That's the invisible church. The visible church is all of the members in churches on the earth currently. The visible church is growing exponentially throughout the world. South Africa alone is producing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians every day. Somewhere around 10,000 Christians every day uh, pop up in Egypt. South America is exploding. China is exploding. The gospel is moving forth all over. The visible church is growing everywhere with the exception of Europe and North America. And that excites me. Because I live in North America and I say, look at the opportunity that we have. Isn't this great? No. We are holy. We are Catholic. What do they mean by Catholic? Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read this to you. I find this to be um, very helpful. Um, As Paul in the book of Ephesians says a lot about the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through uh, 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is he saying here? He is saying that there is this group of people all over the earth that belong to Christ. We are being built by God for uh, this purpose. When it says Catholic, it, it means universal. It is not referring to a specific denomination. It is referring to the universality of the church, that there are going to be some from every tribe and tongue and nation. All over the globe, there are going to be Christians. We believe in this Catholic church that we are one church. We may have different governments. We may have different disagreements. We may have different arguments. We may minor, uh, we may uh, uh, quibble over a few minor things. But at the end of the day, all those churches who say it's all about Jesus, all those who affirm the Apostles' Creed, we say this is the holy Catholic church. There is a universalist church down the street from us on Meridian Road. Um, That is not a church. It has a title, but they do not believe in the Apostles' Creed. 
I'm sure they're wonderful people. I'm sure they want to do great humanitarian things. Um, I, I do not say in any way condescending towards That's not a church. That's a gathering of people who don't believe much of anything. So we're not talking about the universalist denomination. We're talking about the church universal. We are holy. We are Catholic. And then finally, we are communing. Ephesians, just a couple chapters over. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, just two verses. I mean, they're 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the process to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and honor, I'm sorry, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's the, the primary thing that we need to understand about communing um, together. This is a group of people that don't just gather periodically. These are people that do life together. Now, I want to close here, and I've, I've got just a handful of minutes, but I want to sit here for just a few moments before we come to this table. There is no question in my mind one of the most difficult aspects of the city of Tallahassee is trying to break in. This is a very, very friendly town. And I don't know that I've ever experienced just flat-out rudeness from people. I mean, I'm not aware of anyone that says, uh, oh, here's David. Now, they probably do it before I see them and walk out of the way. But I've never experienced just rudeness from others. What what the typical foreigner, someone who comes from somewhere not named Tallahassee, what happens, they come into Tallahassee and see a lot of smiles and get a lot of handshakes, a lot of hugs, and, 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 and people are friendly, but nobody takes the initiative to invite them in. You know why? Not because they're rude, but because they already have all their friendships that they need. And we hear this over and over and over again from people who move in. There's a house in my neighborhood, not too far from us, in which three people have made their way through that house in the town that we've been here. And all three have said the same thing. We can't make friends. There's lots of friendly people. We we can't make friends. Can I ask you... What does your community look like? Do you have people in your life in which you are inviting them in? They are inviting you in. You are accepting that invitation moving forward. They're accepting your invitation moving forward. And you are gathering together outside of Sunday mornings. You're gathering together and you're just doing life. Anybody can meet. A group of people who meet in the same room is not community. 
It's just a group of people meeting together in the same room. I went to yet another FSU football game yesterday. It was a glorious experience. Thank goodness somebody heard the week previous to that that I'd gotten these great, glorious tickets to the Champions Club. So somebody else who wasn't going to be a part of the Champions Club offered me more tickets. So I stuffed myself once again. I have gained eight pounds in two Saturdays. (laughs) I gathered with thousands of people in the same location. It's not community. You can gather with lots and lots and lots of people. You can see faces. You can make eye contact with lots and lots and lots of people. But until you do life together, it's not community. If you need community, look to the church. Because she's God's plan for bringing redemption to the world. And part of that redemption is the healing of the human soul. Loneliness is one of the greatest epidemics of our era. And the church is God's solution to that problem. But now hear me, two things have to happen. This is the proverbial you. I don't have any individual in mind. I'm just, you. Number one, you have to invite someone in. You have to make room within your existing circle for someone else. Because there's somebody right now in this room who is sitting here saying, I want that so bad, David, but nobody will invite me in. So you have to invite someone in. Now, Secondly, you have to accept that invitation. So when someone else invites you in, you have to step forward. What you can't do is sit back and back and just say, you know what, nobody is ever going to invite me in and poor me. You have to take the initiative to step in as well. It's a requirement on both of our parts. Can I tell us Wildwood? Oh, Wildwood, could we? For the next decade or so, devote ourselves towards saying, who needs to be invited in? And invite them. And then step in. And when you step in, guess what it means? It means that now you're going to start talking about some things in here that you haven't opened up yet. And you're going to have to trust someone with that information. At every stage of our life, we have been blessed by the church. When we were in North Carolina, Judith and I, we were there and struggling with infertility. It was the church that came along and cried with us. And when that glorious day came in which I got a phone call from Augusta, Georgia, said, there are twins here. And this birth mother has chosen your profile. We shared that information with the church. And the church laughed and cried tears of joy and celebrated with us. And when we encountered financial hardship, the church came around us. And I'm not talking about the formal church, elders, deacons. I'm talking about God's people came alongside. And when we had serious needs, serious needs financially to help educate and bring some therapy to our kids that had some significant um, uh, uh, challenges. The church came along and supported us and enabled us to get there and do it. 
at every phase of life, whether it has been mourning or whether it has been celebrating, the church has been there. The McNeelys are there once again. We've got some challenges in front of us, some serious challenges. And I can tell you from personal experience, I know, the way God wants to minister is by bringing redemption through the church. If we're not known for anything else, may it be true of us, you, me, that we are a people who love people. If we do that, Jesus will say, Wildwood, well done, my good and faithful servants.